Welcome to Broken Potholes with your host, Sam Stone. Chuck Warren out of the studio this week on vacation. And somehow we managed to even repress the irrepressible Kylie Kipper. She is gone as well. But joining me, and I thank him very much for sticking with us through some technical glitches. Got off to a little bit of a late start here this morning. Bill Shear. Bill is an American pundit, political analyst, contributing editor to Politico magazine, a contributor to Real Clear Politics, and co-host the DMZ, uh, which if you haven't seen, folks, definitely check that out. It's an online TV show with conservative pundit Matt Lewis on bloggingheads.tv. Bill, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Great to be with you. I should also add I'm also writing a lot for the Washington Monthly these days. I, I did see some pieces there, and actually it was one of those that, that I wanted to talk about a little bit, or a couple of those. Um, one of them you had re- pretty recently, vice president gets no res- vice presidents, all of them, get no respect. Kamala Harris is no exception. Can you tell us a little bit about, I thought that was a really fascinating piece as I read it, because I, I think you were exactly on point. But oh, you- Well, thank you. I mean, you know, you know, Kamala's had a rough go of it in the media, I'd say. Her numbers trail Biden's, and Biden's numbers aren't so great himself. Uh, and because it's not a given that Biden will run for re-election, although he has said to people that he will, uh, it's not being accepted at face value. He is up there in age. Uh, and so you, you're getting a undercurrent of concern amongst Democrats. Hey, if Biden doesn't run, is Kamala really ready for prime time, uh, and I, I think it puts common in, in this very awkward position because number one, it's very unusual for a vice president, at least, particularly in modern times, to have less Washington experience than the president. We've been doing the reverse a lot lately. You have kind of a quasi outsider president. And then the old Washington hand as your number two. Uh, so, you know, she's gonna, she has a weird contrast with Biden in that respect, but she's expected or, or at least hoped to be, you know, presidential material right away because not only could Biden have a health crisis, but he might not run in, in, in three years. Right. Uh, and she's the first African American woman vice president. And when you're a first, there's this un unfair expectation that you're going to be the next Jackie Robinson. You're going to be amazing at everything right away. And, yeah. and vice president just doesn't give you the opportunity to be amazing. You're the number two. You don't get to grandstand. <laughs> you don't give the, I have a dream speech. You know, you, you, you have no inherent powers. I, generally so, you're, you're Mike Pence and you're there to keep people calm. Well, you're supposed to be a loyalist. I mean, right. the best VPs are loyalists, but he, I mean, the only vice president uh, since Martin Van Buren, the only sitting vice president to win the presidency as a sitting vice president is George H.W. Bush, who was the consummate loyalist to Ronald Reagan. You know, he, he jettisoned a lot of his moderate positions to get in line with Reagan and the conservative trend of the Republican Party. Uh, but when he first was beginning his run in 1988, he was tagged as the wimp. You know, the Newsweek had the famous cover fighting the wimp factor, which you know, burned on him so much. It was a Simpsons joke eight years later. And this is guy actually won, you know, so like even the best case scenario, you're not you're never beloved as vice president. So, I mean, I'm not, not to say that Kamala has it, doesn't have the things to think through and figure out how to navigate these waters. But I just think she should be judged compared to other vice presidents, not compared to, say, Jackie Robinson. Well, or 
or necessarily judged as the front runner for for the nomination if Biden should sit aside. I mean, I, I would tend to think that people like Transportation Secretary Buttigieg and others would be in that race regardless if it turned out that Biden did step down. Well, she probably wouldn't clear the field. But again, what vice president has? You know, George Bush rang against Bob Dole and Pat Robertson and Jack Kemp. Uh, you know, Gore was the closest, but he still had Bill Bradley. Bill Bradley almost caught him in New Hampshire. Uh, you had you know, Joe Biden didn't clear the field. Walter Mondale didn't clear the field. Uh, so it's not unusual for someone to say, hey, I think this person is is beatable. And I'm going to give it my best shot. Um, so I, I, I assume she would have opponents. But now Buttigieg is getting the most, you know, alternative buzz. But let's think through that for a little bit. You're Pete Buttigieg. Uh, you're transportation secretary. You're not in a position that's normally considered a stepping stone to the presidency. You ran for president previously, as, the, as did Kamala. And what was your Achilles heel? You could not win African-American votes. <laughs> right. you, had no, you had no credibility as someone who had delivered for the African-American community and, ha- and had built those bonds. And Look, he's he's very young. He's got a lot of years on him. He's got time to develop those relationships. Should his next big thing to be running against the first African-American vice president? Because, <laughs> I mean, I mean, maybe it could work. I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible, but if if he if that bet is wrong and he further angers, I mean, you can't win the Democratic nomination without African-American voters. You just right. can't. Um, or, or say it's, or it, it, it's you know, a huge mountain without them. Right. The last the last guy to essentially pull that off to win the nomination was Mike Dukakis. And he and that happened because uh, you had Jesse Jackson in the race who was able to win some, you know, African-American majority states in the South. But he couldn't Jackson couldn't dominate the South because you, you had a lot more white, moderate Southerners in the, in the Democratic Party back then. And Al Gore was in that race. And so Gore and Jackson, you know, split the South. In fact, in fact, Dukakis was able to sneak in and pick off Texas and pick off Florida because the South wasn't united around one candidate against Dukakis. So he wins, but he, but he wins it in kind of a tenuous way and arguably doesn't easily get as much of the African-American vote as Democrats normally get because there are some residual hard feelings. Uh, so it is technically possible to win without the black vote, but it is incredibly hard. And if you burn that relationship badly, it can really damage your long-term prospects. So if I'm Pete Buttigieg, I'm going to say to myself, why risk antagonizing this incredibly important constituency when I got a lot of years on me? I'm going to wait, maybe be secretary of state or UN ambassador in the next Democratic presidency and then jump from there and not piss anybody off. Yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, I think for him, he would have a lot of I mean, just being honest about it, I think he would have a lot of one on one work to do with African-American leaders to to provide a bulwark for him, because let's let's be real about it. There is still a lingering anti LGBTQ sentiment in parts of the African-American community. So you, you would be battling that it's going away, but it's still there. Well, I, I don't want to. Yeah, I, I haven't seen data on it, so I don't want to you know, s- just speak confidently about that kind of thing. Uh, but anyone who's going to be a barrier breaker uh, has a, a certain burden, fair or unfair, to prove to the electorate 
this is not going to be uh, electoral dead weight. You know, Barack Obama had to prove himself. Uh, Hillary Clinton had to prove herself. Uh, if Kamala Rand, she'll have to prove herself and Buttigieg have to prove himself. I mean, this, this camp to some degree in, in 2020. Um, but you, what was uh, Obama's you know, big moment? Uh, I mean, he, he, you know, he was he was gutted out a win over Hillary in 2016. I mean, I'm sorry, in 2008. Um, and then he's hit with the whole Jeremiah Wright thing uh, somewhat late in the in the in the primary. Mm-hmm. And there's this collective, you know, you know, heart palpitation. The Democratic Party is this going to is Obama not the golden boy that I thought I thought he was? Uh, how is he going to get out of this pickle? And then he gives the more perfect union speech, and, every, and all Democrats are like, "Well, that was amazing." Okay, okay, you you shown me, you know what you're going to do when you're hit with this stuff. Uh, and in fact, he he was hit with some of that stuff along the way, and, and he have and he navigated. He 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 had done the I think the legwork ahead of time to think through how to deal with those kinds of pitfalls, which is why he was such a good, good politician. Uh, so, you know, Buttigieg would, ha- would inevitably come with those sorts of challenges, as would Kamala or anybody else who's a first. And it's not fair, but you know, there's no fair in politics. You have to sh- prove to voters you can get the 50% plus one in a, in a state or with the electoral college. Like that, that's, that's the ultimate challenge. Well, I think for Buttigieg, part of part of that challenge is growing from a fairly small role. I mean, granted, as as mayor, but of a very small city, uh, he's got a lot to learn on the national political stage still. Right. I mean, he has a lot to learn as far as, you know, politics and in terms of governing. I mean, you know, transportation secretary is a step up from mayor of a small city. I mean, being yep. mayor of South Bend was always ridiculous right. as a qualification <laughs> to be president. Right. Uh, but it, it's but half, his, half the size of the council district I live in. Right, too. <laughs> but to his credit, like he, he I mean, not every person who runs for president improves their career prospect afterwards. There are people whose career prospects are harmed. Julian Castro is in a worse place after running. Good point. Uh, but Pete Buttigieg is not. Pete Buttigieg had a better than average run, got a lot of fans, a lot of supporters, and was able to pick off me. I think he wants he wants Secretary of State. I think mm-hmm. couldn't get couldn't get that much, but got something, and now he's in a better place than he was. Uh, but it's well, still going to be hard to argue that that's enough qualification to be president. Uh, and I'd be probably better off getting one more plum position that that's higher up on the ladder before making that that final jump. Talking about Biden's legislative agenda 2021, because that was another piece you wrote on recently. Could it have been better? Uh, I'm not sure it could have been. I'm, I'm curious as to your take. But I, I think for whether it's Kamala or any of these other hopefuls or Biden himself, this next piece of legislation coming through is probably more critical, at least that's my take, uh, than the infrastructure bill, because this is the one that feeds your base. Well, I think Build Back Better is necessary but not sufficient for Democrats to have a good 2022, let alone 2024. Uh, it the, the base has extraordinarily high expectations for it. And so if you fail... That's going to just shatter your coalition. Now, you, to to pull back for a second, you know, most presidential presidents' parties have bad midterms. Right. Uh, it's not just um, you it's know, not Biden. Uh, it's it's every president, especially that almost first midterm, almost almost every president. I mean, and I think that's important. So, we've had thirty six midterms 
since the end of the Civil War. And the president's party loses House seats in 33 of the 36. And now a lot of those times the margins are so big that if you lose some House seats, it's no big thing. But Democrats have a five seat uh, margin of error in the House and only and, and a zero seat margin of error in the right. Senate. So like they could have an above average midterm and still lose both houses of Congress. Uh, so you really got to pitch a perfect game, pitch a no hitter if you're going to avoid this problem. Uh, so that means and why does it normally go the other way? Well, normally you're governing, you're compromising, there are trade offs, there's imperfections. Good ideas don't work out as as well as you thought they were or, did, or didn't kick into gear as quick as you would like them to be. And so some part of your coalition is disappointed yep. and either goes to the other side or doesn't show up on election day. Bill, I'm going to cut you off there. Broken potholes will be coming right back. The 2020 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2021. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from godaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome back to Broken Potholes with your host, Sam Stone. Chuck Warren out of the studio this week, but on the line with us, Bill Shear. Bill, a contributing editor to Politico magazine, has been doing some really good work lately for the Washington Monthly. Uh, and when we went to break, we were talking about Build Back Better and what Biden, the Democrats, need from from this next piece of legislation to really have a chance to hold a very, very slim margin in Congress. Right. So if they're going to beat the odds on the midterms, you got to reverse the normal pattern. You can't have your coalition splinter because they're frustrated with governing realities while the opposition remains united, putting their differences aside to focus on hatred of you. You got to flip that script. So you have to pass some stuff that unites your party while also retaining appeal to the swing. And you have to cross your fingers that your opponent's going to be in some disarray. And there are, there are a few times where this has happened. Um, you look at 1934, FDR is coming out of the Great Depression uh, or, or starting to. 1962, Cuban Missile Crisis is right before the midterms. Uh, 2002, uh, post 9-11, national security fears are uniting the Republican Party. You know, those are times where part, the president's party is beating the odds. Uh, so if, if Biden is managing the pandemic well, let's say the, the variants, we're getting past these variants and we got more vaccines in kids' arms and the mask mandates are lifting, let's say inflation is starting to lift because of that, uh, that might help with the middle. And if you got Build Back Better done, that's going to get your base excited. So I, I think all those pieces have to come together. Uh, and so this is one piece of the puzzle, getting its final bill done, but it, it probably doesn't get you the swing because so much in that bill is long-term. It's not it's solving immediate problems. Right. You know, inflation is an immediate problem and Biden can say all day long, it's not going to make things worse, but it's not designed to make things better today. He needs things to be better today or, or, or to, like literally tomorrow uh, for people to reward their governing. Uh, so I think it's important, but it's not going to be the whole, uh, it's, it's not the entire puzzle. I, I think that's a good point. And I think, you know, COVID obviously will have such a big impact on that, but that and inflation. I, I think if you look at Biden's poll numbers right now, and same thing for Harris, who we were just talking about, a lot of that has to do with people who are out Thanksgiving and Christmas shopping and getting a bit of a sticker shock. Uh, but if that recedes and we're nine months past that point, 
Americans tend to have a very short memory on these things, right? If things are going well next year in November, that's really what what he needs to be going for, right? Uh, true, but I'll, but just to reiterate, I mean, things could be better, right? Your inflation could go from six to two, which is very, a very reasonable amount of inflation, and the mass mandates could be lifting, and maybe they lose only eight House seats, which right. would be really good historically speaking, but you would still lose the House, right. uh, and they may lose only one Senate seat, but that would still mean losing the Senate. So they need things to go wrong for Republicans too. And look, if you got Trump and McConnell fighting, if you have Taylor Green and Nancy Mace still, you know, in, in, in the sandbox, uh, and and you know, and maybe we have a ruling by the Supreme Court on abortion in late June, early July, uh, that undoes Roe, uh, which you might think, well, you know, well, the blue states will do their thing, the red states will do their thing, and. You know, we'll go we'll go our separate ways and that'll be hunky dory. Uh, there's some purple states in there, you know, uh, and there are going to be some very, very fierce battles. I mean, a lot of governor's races in 2022. Yeah. I mean, uh, here in Arizona, for instance, the way our law is set up, if Roe was overturned, abortions would be instantly banned here in Arizona. And so and there are a number of states like that. And particularly there are a number of purple, blue trending states, sunbelt type states uh where that is that is the case and i i think that's where republicans are bit you know the dog that caught the car yeah uh, they would, they would look, look over this for such a long time and you know they they haven't won the argument with the public on this subject you know roe still polls very well right some restrictions poll well it's not like abortion on demand polls well but roe polls what polls well uh and Places where, like, like a Texas where young tech workers are pouring into Austin, right. um, those these are the, you know college educated voters are more pro choice than not, and those are the people that are pouring into places like Texas and Arizona, and North Carolina. Uh, that's where I think Republicans might find themselves in a very difficult position come 2022. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree, and because I think if you look at the numbers, I mean, here in Arizona, I think. Having some legal right to abortion, if I remember the last time I saw numbers, was about a 63% winner, 60, 63%. Um, likewise, people are not for unlimited abortion on demand. I think there's some middle ground here. But to me, this is the most dangerous thing Republicans have, have caught uh, for this upcoming election cycle because the amount of money, the energy that would be poured into the Democrat base after Roe was overturned would be enormous. Yeah, I, I, I there's definitely a, a sleeping giant there on the Democratic base. I think you, a lot of money is going to be poured in. Now, now having said all this, there are there are political uh, tripwires for Democrats as well, because this is going to produce a huge part of that backlash is going to be pressure on Democrats to abolish the filibuster and pack the court. Mm -hmm. And there's not unanimity amongst Democrats for that. So in every Senate race, there's going to be pressure on that Democrat to say, yes, I'm going to pack the court. Maybe that's not going to do well uh, with swing voters in those states. Or there'll be frustration that Democrats in the Senate aren't already doing that. Why isn't Joe Manchin abolishing the filibuster packing the court right now? Why isn't Chris Sinema doing that right now? And that could depress Democratic base turnout. So it's not it's not all one sided, yeah. um, but it's a puts a huge wild card to go into 2022 with. When you have both parties that are essentially being run by their most uh, 
extreme wings, their most adamant wings on, on Twitter, essentially, uh, it's really hard to govern for the middle and, and build any kind of lasting coalition, right? I mean, that's, I think that's a challenge. Uh, it, it's balancing base and swing is always a challenge. Uh, it's more and more of a challenge in a polarized country, a social media fueled country. Uh, I think Republicans in the Trump era did not walk that line well. Um, they, uh, you know, Trump had a base only strategy that was not good for 2018 or 2020. Mm-hmm. Now, I think Biden, you know, Biden is trying to keep people united. He, I mean, the, the Biden agenda, American Rescue Plan, infrastructure, build back better. That's not an extreme left base only strategy. That's bread and butter stuff. I mean, there's big money involved. There's a lot of spending involved, but it's not pursuing every cultural war battle that one can get their hands on. It's meant to deliver bread and butter stuff for middle class families. Yeah, look, uh, I mean, big government, big spending has always been kind of a core Democrat position. That's that's not something that the public really objects to. I mean, the public is often, you know, uh, they want their free. They don't they like being told what to do, but they're happy if you give them money. So, right. <laughs> uh, uh, so that's always the the, the tension in any kind of governing co- coalition. Uh, so I think Biden's trying pretty hard to not get sucked into a lot of culture war stuff and to focus on bread and butter. But once abortion's in the mix, that's a hard thing to just sort of close your eyes and wish away. Both parties are going to have to engage on the subject. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we we're, before we go to break, and I've told this story to plenty and plenty of candidates, Republicans have an, a, a problem with abortion that I don't think we fully recognize a lot of times, is that when you have a, a mother with her 15, 16-year-old daughter who gets pregnant, they might be the most anti-abortion religious person in the world, but chances are pretty good she's going to try to sneak the daughter off to the clinic anyway. I, I mean, that just and, is. And in the voting booth, that that tells. And I think one of the questions is, how easy is that going to be? How easy can you cross state lines? How easy can you get your hands on an abortion pill? Texas has now banned sending abortion pills into Texas. Is there going to be a black market of pill smuggling going on? And how prosecutable is it going to be? We'll answer answer that when Broken Potholes comes back. It's the new year and time for the new you. You've thought about running for political office, but don't know where to start. Before you start any planning, you need to secure your name online with a yourname.vote web domain. This means your constituents will know they are learning about the real you when they surf the web. Secure your domain from GoDaddy.com today. Welcome back to Broken Potholes with your host, Sam Stone. On the line with us today, Bill Shear. Bill, where can people find you if they want to learn more, hear more of what you got to say? Because I, I tell you, I think it is something everyone needs to do. You've been fantastic today. I appreciate it. Well, you can find me on Twitter, uh, Bill Share, B-I-L-L-S-C-H-E-R. And I plug all my material there. But I'm generally found at the Washington Monthly, Real Clear Politics, and at Politico. And also the DMZ show with Matt Lewis. I co-hosted. That's at bloggingheads.tv. Fantastic. You know, right when we went to break, we were talking abortion, but I want to switch gears a little bit here and talk about someone I enjoy quite a bit. Uh, Don't always agree, obviously. Bill Maher, because you just had a fantastic piece in the Washington Monthly about Bill. So tell us about that piece real quick. Well, you know, Bill Maher is someone who has recently been leading the crusade against, you know, quote, stupid wokeness 
and as said, the Democrats are destined to be destroyed in 2022 and 2024 because they've been, you know, uh, they, they've been pursuing all these woke culture war type policies. Uh, and uh, and he, he basically said, you know, Democrats, you know, no one likes a snob. You're alienating the white working class. And that's that's stupid politics. And my gut reaction was, <laughs> Bill Maher, you are the quintessential condescending Hollywood liberal. <laughs> you did a whole documentary insulting people who believe in God. How how did you become the person <laughs> criticizing Democrats for this? I, I, but look, you know, I mean, he could be a hypocrite and be right. I, um, I think he is right to a significant extent. But I think you were right also in that piece that. He's got some blind spots there. You know, a lot of this country is very religious and believes in God deeply and believes in their church. And, and you know, he once said it not too long ago, did a whole thing about how, how obese people are the cause of the healthcare crisis. And why can't we be like Europe and eat less fried food? I mean, how how more anti-American can you be? How, how snobby can you be? Um, <laughs> But, but I think the the critique he has of Demo- the critique he has of Democrats is wrong on a couple of fronts, in my opinion. One, at least the specific case that he was making, uh, he was criticizing the Democrats for he criticized the six Democrats that vote against the infrastructure bill because they didn't, didn't do enough on climate change. And my, my reaction was, yeah, and. 265 Democrats voted for that bill. So why are you harping on the six? I mean, if, you, if you're worried that Democrats are being defined by their fringe, while you're on HBO, don't say that the fringe is dictating the party line because it's the opposite in that case. Well, um, and as someone who who works in a local government where we're the minority in a, in a you know two two Republicans out of eight seats, sometimes a protest vote has value. And, and if you've got something that's going to pass anyway, like that was, sometimes it makes sense to dissent, right? Well, sure. I mean, if, you're, if there's a point you want to make, you're, you're not you're not ruining the bill. You know, the right. bill's still going to pass, but you want to get this one point into the you know into the conversation. You know, plenty of people have done that on the left and the right over the course of history. Yeah. Uh, but you don't take that protest vote and say this defines the Democratic Party when they just got the bill passed. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. Um, and I think he he's so prone to complain about political correctness. And there's, there's certainly examples that one can point to, uh, it, it, whether you put them to the Democrats or not, there's things you can point to. But he took a bunch of examples on CNN not too long ago that were factually wrong. He said that the, he said that Illinois canceled Lincoln, and that's not true. He said they tore down something of Lincoln's when, in fact, they they have a Chicago has a review commission where they're looking at various statues, but they haven't committed to tearing down anything. And the mayor said we're always going to be the land of Lincoln. Um, he said that Seattle voted to decriminalize crime when one city councilor proposed making it easier to get out of misdemeanor charges by claiming poverty. But the, it never became a bill and it was never voted on. It was it was opposed by the mayor. Uh, and they and they complained that that uh, people were saying that babies should have the right to vote when the person who p- pushed that wrote an op ed in The New York Times. And he's from a conservative think tank, two conservative think tanks, American Enterprise Institute and the Institute for Family Studies. Just because it's in The New York Times doesn't mean it's part of the Democratic Party platform. You know, <laughs> you gotta look at who wrote the thing. <laughs> so it's that kind of stuff where I feel like he's he, he's making it sound much, much worse <laughs> than it actually is for Democrats. But he's entertaining when he does it. Right. So uh, I, mean, I mean, joke. I mean, it's it's one thing to say, well, he's a comedian, you know, but 
number one, what I'm what I'm quoting here aren't jokes. He's making substantive points. Right. And it may be framed with a joke here and there. And, and you know, and he can be very funny. I've liked a lot of Bill Maher's jokes, uh, but he's still trying to make a point of, of substance. And that point is, is, is subject to critique. Absolutely. Bill, thank you so much for being on with us today. We really, really appreciated having you. Uh, and thank you for, I really enjoy your work. So just thank you for that. I appreciate it. And any last words before you go? Uh, just check me out on Twitter and um, the, at the Washington Monthly, Real Clear and Politico, and hope I can talk to you again soon. There it is. We'd love to have you back. Bill Shear, thank you Take so care. much. Broken Potholes, coming back in just a moment. The political field is all about reputation, so don't let someone squash yours online. Secure your name and political future with a yourname.vote web address from GoDaddy.com. Your political career depends on it. Welcome back to Broken Potholes with your host, Sam Stone. Chuck Warren out of the studio and out of... Well, he's not even on the line for us today, folks. He's, you're getting gypped. All you get is me. But you also get some fantastic guests. want to thank Bill Shear. Uh, fantastic guest. Don't agree with him on everything. But here's our next guest is someone I agree with far more often. So looking forward to talking with her. Kaylee McGee-White, uh, commentary writer for the Washington Examiner, focusing on religion, politics, and culture. Uh, her work has, a cleared, has appeared in Real Clear Politics, The Weekly Standard, The Detroit News, Orange County Register, and more. Uh, and she's a graduate of Hillsdale College with a degree in politics and journalism. Folks, I'm going to ask Kaylee to tell you how to follow along uh, on her work. But if you're not, you really need to. She writes really great, short, often short, pithy, but right to the point little columns, which I absolutely love. Uh, Kaylee, welcome to Broken Potholes. Thank you so much for having me. So how do, first off, let's let's get the good stuff out of the way. How do people follow you if they're not already? Um, well, I'm I'm on basically every social media account there is. Um, I'm on Twitter, Kaylee D. McGee, um, Facebook. I have a, a page there too, Kaylee McGee White. And I'm on Instagram too. And I, I'll regularly post the most, I think, on Twitter, especially with um, what I'm writing about um, on a daily basis. Uh, so that's probably the best way to keep up with my work, I would say. Perfect. Well, and talk about keeping up. It, it seems like the current administration isn't doing much of that. They seem to be behind the curve on just about everything. But you had a piece recently, Biden shocked to learn high gas prices are his fault. Personally, I thought this was fairly obvious. But what, what is that about? Tell us what's going on there. Yes. So obviously, you know, anyone who has a car and has to fill up at the pump regularly has noticed that gas prices are much more expensive than they were this time last year. And they just keep getting even more expensive. And obviously, the White House does not have direct control over the prices of gas. A lot of it is very much so dependent on the market. But the White House does have direct control over the environmental policies that can increase supply of oil and gas and thereby drive down the prices a little bit. And the problem with the Biden administration is that they have 
embraced policies that basically, you know, cut off most U.S. oil production internally. Um, they're fighting against several pipeline developments, um, which a lot of um, industry experts have, they warned against that. And they said that is going to hurt long-term oil production if the U.S. is not able to pipe down oil from Canada um, or from, you know, other other places. So those are those are policies that are affecting prices now, and they're going to continue to affect prices in the long term. And instead of doing what a reasonable person would do and cutting back on regulations, Biden is instead just basically begging OPEC to produce more oil for him so that he doesn't have to. Isn't that sort of, though, the 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 motto of the environmentalist movement in the U.S. is we're going to try to stop everything domestically, but we actually don't care if you're doing these things overseas in a much dirtier fashion than the, you would be doing it here? Yeah, which is the hypocrisy of it all, right? I mean, yeah. it doesn't make any sense for us to cut back on our own oil production if another country just has to increase its own production if the point is to stop all production whatsoever. And the other thing that I find so ironic about the energy debate is that environmentalists, a lot of them are also very opposed to alternative means of energy, like nuclear en energy mm -hmm. that could you know, be invested in to produce alternative forms if you don't want to rely so heavily on oil and gas. And they're completely opposed to that. So it is it's just there is so much hypocrisy in the debate and it's really <laughs> ironic that Biden doesn't see any problem with it whatsoever. Yeah, I, I, I feel like when I'm trying to talk to environmentalists about this, that they are the most adamantly uneducated people I deal with because, you know, they're they're adamant in their ideas, but they never look beyond the eight word mantra or the five word mantra that they're, you know, they're being told to spew and so, like, I lived in Oklahoma. When you don't have a pipeline, what happens? You put that oil in a truck. There's spillage in the transfer process. The truck takes it to a train. There's spillage in the transfer process. If you're bringing oil from overseas, you're running, you know, you have spillage at the ports. You have potential risk of the, the carriers, the tankers. So pipeline is, is environmentally the most beneficial way to transport oil, and we still need oil. Every one of these people objecting to, you know, our use of oil runs around with cell phones, they drive cars, they do all this stuff too, right? Oh, absolutely. But that's, um, you know, so many of the people, I think you're right, so many of the people who endorse um, really leftist policies on the environment are oftentimes the people who never actually change anything about their own everyday lives to match up with what they're arguing. Mm -hmm. And even even if they do, like, let's say, like, I know Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez drives a Tesla. People found this out like several months ago. That's great. She wants to invest in an electric vehicle. Do you know the average cost of a Tesla? And do you know how Teslas are produced? Because they're produced by using oil and gas. Like, it's, right. it's so that thing is like, you, you get all of this from something and it's not just like, oh, let's use clean energy, boom, let's create an electric vehicle out of thin air. Like, that's not how it works. Everything uses some sort of fossil fuel production. Um, and I don't think that, I don't know if, like, environmentalists just don't realize that, if they haven't taken the time to actually do the research. Um, but a lot of it is just talk. I, I, I got to say, because we, we dealt with climate strike protests here in Phoenix a couple of years ago, starting a couple of years ago, and I went out to go talk to them. 
And the first thing I realized was that they don't let anyone talk to the average person out at these protests. There have some leaders who really will hustle their people away from anybody who tries to ask them any questions. If your movement is built on that level of ignorance, I have a really hard time buying into it. Yeah, and as anyone should. I mean, people who can't be bothered to actually think through the policies that they're proposing to think about the long-term consequences of those policies don't actually deserve the right to be heard seriously No, by people who then have to write the policies. Absolutely not. I want to turn to a couple other things because obviously these are kind of in the news right now, but uh, you had a piece, Anthony Fauci is just another partisan pundit now which I fully agree with. I'm not even sure I'd give him that much credit at this point. Um, but his track record in, in COVID is is amazingly awful. He's yeah, spe- it's, he's been wrong about, I think, everything yeah. that he, he said. I mean, starting back, way back towards the beginning of the pandemic, when he came out and said, don't wear masks, they're not effective. We don't need you to wear them whatever. And then he basically admitted that that was a lie and that the only reason that he said that was because they wanted to reserve, you know, personal protective equipment for healthcare workers, which is fine, but it was still a lie. Right. Still wrong about that. Well, and one um, of the basics of public health is that you've got to give people consistent, clear advice, right? Yeah. And he's been all over the map with everything. I mean, you even just, you know, this the past couple of weeks when he was talking about holiday travel and whether people should get together with their family members for the holidays. At first he was like, well, vaccinated adults should be able to do that. And then he pivoted to, oh yeah, I don't actually care if you get together with <laughs> all of the family members and oh yeah, well, maybe you should be cautious when you travel to, oh no, we don't actually care if you travel at all. They'll, you know what I mean? It's just total mixed messaging. And I honestly wonder how many people outside of you know, the liberal blue check Twitter sphere actually listen to him still, because I don't think that many people do unless you're regularly watching MSNBC, which is, you know, one of the only channels that he'll go on nowadays. But I I agree with you. But I think the danger to that is that the people who run a lot of state health departments and a lot of state institutions do listen, right? They, They do listen to him, especially because he is still on the White House's coronavirus team. You know, and they also listen to the CDC, even though you don't necessarily see the CDC director um, appearing on TV to say outlandish things as much as Fauci does. But yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that he still has a very strong influence over the Biden administration's coronavirus policy, which is then passed down to the states, which is why I think um, in large part, you know, blue states like California, New York, even to a certain extent here in Washington, D.C., where I live, some of these policies might never go away. Like they might just not go away. And it's because you have this kind of panic that Fauci and other people have are constantly driving into the minds of liberal policymakers. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, I don't know what what the next step is. No, I I would not be surprised at all. I I think one of the things that at least to me on the outside, it seems like a lot of his proclamations are poll driven. So whatever whatever the Democrat base is kind of driving at that day or that week becomes policy. Yeah, but it's it's interesting because I don't even know if it's the Democratic base that supports COVID policies anymore, because over here in Virginia, 
we just had an election last month in which I, I think that COVID was a very big part of that election. Same thing over in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, New Jersey was not supposed to be a close election at all. The governor, Phil Murphy, who has been a very strict COVID person, almost got ran out of his seat when no one was expecting that in large part because so many people were angry with his COVID policies. The candidate who ran against him, that was literally like his main platform was this guy almost destroyed our state by sending us all into lockdown for like a year. And that's the thing is, you know, these are both states, Virginia and New Jersey, that are not red states by any means, which means that it's not just Republican voters who are feeling this, it's also Democrats, uh, Democratic voters and moderate voters, independent voters who are really sick of being told, oh, just a few more weeks, just a few more months. Oh, we have to do this, you know, and then maybe like they want a final solution to this now. And they're they're really sick of seeing the goalposts shifted constantly. It, it seems like there's sort of an isolated blue check Twitter class, uh, you know, academia in the media, these things which have a very different perspective on COVID than the average American who red state, blue state, you've been out there dealing with it for two years. Absolutely. And, you know, most of the people who are the most paranoid about COVID still, I found, are people who work in media, people who have the ability to work from home, people who never lost their jobs during COVID, who got cushy paychecks throughout the entire pandemic, who are able to afford grocery delivery, who never have to leave their homes for anything because they can pay other people to do it all for them. I mean, these are like, we're talking about some of the most privileged people in America Mm -hmm. who have the privilege to worry about COVID. And that's the thing is, uh, you know, I don't know how you get people out of that mindset. Um, If like, it it just seems like it's a, it's a hysteria at this point. No, I, I agree fully. My, my part of my family's in upstate New York. My parents are there. My mother, who's always been a bit of a germaphobe has taken this and, and they are in a position where they can get everything delivered. They have a very, very small circle they exist in. And, she, you know, as far as I can tell, she will maintain these level of restrictions forever. And Yeah. And that's because, like, again, if you don't own a business, if you don't have to go out in the real world and interact with people on a daily basis, then, of course, maybe you will have the inclination to be more worried about these things. But other people cannot afford to let it consume their lives because they have jobs to do and they have things to see. And it and that it just seems like it's such a small fraction of the population at this point that wants to hold everyone else back, um, especially in blue areas. You know, my in-laws are from Ohio and my family lives in Michigan. COVID hasn't been a thing there for like the past year and a half. I mean, right. people in Ohio stopped paying attention probably like in the summer of 2020. So which is it, when they it, stopped paying attention here in Arizona. Yeah, so that's the thing. It, it's so interesting to to see the geographic breakdown. Um, you know, I think it's obviously been a much bigger deal here in DC than um, you know, in, in a lot of other. Places. Yeah, no, I, I'm shocked. We we've got just a about less than one minute, thirty seconds before we go to break here. Uh, we're going to come back on podcast only uh, with Kaylee McGee White. Uh, Kaylee, thank you so much for being on the program with us today. Uh, Folks, definitely check her out on social media. Check out her Twitter. But stay tuned. Check out our, you know, Substack, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all those kinds of things. You can download it there and get the final segment, which 
Kaylee has graciously agreed to stay for. Broken Potholes will be back on air next week. The 2020 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2021. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote domain from GoDaddy. Get yours now. Welcome back to Broken Potholes with your host, Sam Stone. Chuck Warren out of the studio this week. If you're listening now, you are listening on our podcast. And thank you for downloading. Uh, Be sure to subscribe. Make sure you get Broken Potholes in your mailbox every single week. And still on the line with us, and thank you so much, Kaylee McGee-White, commentary writer for The Washington Examiner. She's done some very interesting work recently, but I want to talk about kind of the big news of the whole country today. Uh, abortion in front of the Supreme Court with a real chance that Roe uh, might get overturned. Kaylee, is that really a possibility? And what happens then? I I definitely think it's a real possibility, um, you know, based on how the oral arguments went and the line of questioning from the different justices. I think that it looks pretty likely that we might have a five to four vote to overturn Roe. Um, but, you know, I I guess I try not to get my hopes up too much because everyone thought this about the Obamacare case as well. And, you know, <laughs> Chief Justice John Roberts found a way to he, he found some novel reason middle of the road solution that didn't actually do anything. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it has made a lot of money for insurance companies since that time. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things about this, if you overturn Roe and, and, you know, hand it back to the 50 states, which I've always believed legally was the right thing. I think there are a lot of states that need to be addressing this ahead of time, right? That- and I do think that most states, a lot of um, a lot of Republican states in particular have what are referred to as trigger laws, mm-hmm. where if Roe is overturned, their laws either restricting or banning abortion, um, would go into effect then immediately. So that is one thing that a lot of states have already prepared for um, in that sense. But, you know, then there are other there are other policies that need to be taken into consideration as well. Um, I wrote about this actually earlier this week about how, you know, Republican states, if you are going to restrict and ban abortion, then you should also pair those laws with policies that support families and women and make it as financially easy as possible um, to have children mm-hmm. um, in in that sense. You know, if we're going to be pro-life in that sense, then we have to be pro-life. And so, uh, it you know, probably means a, putting some money into your adoption services agency and uh, things like that, too. Right. I mean, you really have to look at every possible outcome at that. Absolutely. Point. And, you know, increased child tax credits, uh, a voluntary paid leave plan similar to one that Marco Rubio and Mitt Romney introduced. There are so many different ways that Republican states can prop up families and make their lives easier um, that will help states become pro-life in a long-term way as well. You know, and I, this is one of those issues I I think has 
potentially a huge. I, I I think 2022 was heading on a fairly predictable course where Democrats would lose the House and Senate. I still think that's the case, but I do think this is maybe the one issue that could throw the most chaos into that, um, where it, it really is going to energize the Democratic base, but also will energize the pro-life base, right? Absolutely. And I, I do think, though, that a little bit of concern about, you know, overturning Roe and how it might energize the Democratic base specifically, I think it's a bit overstated because so many polls nowadays show that the vast majority of Americans support some sort of abortion restriction. Mm-hmm. Like we're not talking about like the abortion activists who are out here calling for you know, abortion on demand at any stage of pregnancy are such a small minority of people who would definitely be upset about the decision and who would absolutely try and, you know, get everyone else on board with different levels of activism at that point. But the vast majority of Americans who have been polled about this issue actually agree that some restrictions are a good thing. And so I just don't know how radicalized the voter base would actually be on this issue when most people agree that restrictions are um, at least somewhat necessary. So, yeah, I mean, if the Democrat Party and, and they may have a really hard time, you know, kind of separating from their own extremists on this. But if they're out there pushing laws that are basically like the the Roman rule for abortion, where you take the baby that that night and put it out on the doorstep to die, that's yeah. not going to fly. Right. No, not at all. And and yeah, I think that's I don't know. And it's interesting, too, because um, I was reading an article by a Washington Post columnist actually earlier today, and she was pointing out the breakdown in polls um, between the two genders and how women actually aren't nearly like there's not a, a huge difference in opinion between men and women on this issue either. So, you know, what, something that everyone's saying is you're going to have huge female backlash, like more females are going to become de- Democrats if you overturn Roe. All of these polls are suggesting that that's not the case at all. So it, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Obviously, it's something that even with polls, it's so hard to determine what's true and what's not um, and, you know, read into the future that way. But Definitely uh, uh, will be interesting to see. The other possible outcome I see, or is is most likely, is that they allow the Mississippi law to stand 15 weeks. They say states can have restrictions beyond the 24-week limitation. And that's going to generate a whole lot of additional cases in the future, right? There's going to be cases from state after state after state. So in that sense, this issue stays front and center going forward regardless. Yes. And I mean, to be honest, I think that even if the court does overturn Roe, this issue still remains front and center, maybe not before the Supreme Court, but certainly at a political level, because, you know, maybe it's a politically smart decision to allow the states to decide for themselves what to do about abortion. But if you're looking at this from a moral perspective, just because Mississippi bans abortion or restricts it, you still have New York and California allowing abortion into the second trimester, even into the third trimester, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's still going to be a moral issue for hundreds of thousands of voters. Um, And I I don't think that it resolves the question. No, I think it's a really hard issue for a lot of Democrats, because if you're trying to say, you know, we just had what a baby at 21 weeks survived, uh, you know, premature. 
you're going to have a really tough argument to make about 24 weeks. Yeah. And that, you know, that's another important point is that the more that medicine advances and um, it's impossible to deny that science is on the pro-life side. You can't look at a child that's born at 21 or 24 weeks and claim that that is not a viable human being when it is fully capable of surviving outside the womb with medical intervention. Right. So then like the ethical question, like, okay, if a 21 week year old infant is capable of surviving outside the womb only with medical intervention, can you then deny medical intervention to that child? Like, that's like the logic here that Democrats and abortion advocates don't want to wrestle with. They don't want to acknowledge that this is the taking of a life. Um, And that's a point that Justice Clarence Thomas was trying to make during the oral argument. He brought up a case in which a mother was being held criminally responsible for ingesting drugs while she was pregnant. And then the child, you know, uh, suffered after the pregnancy as a result. And he was trying to ask the counsel. He was like, is it okay that the state was able to hold that woman criminally responsible? Right. And they were like, oh, you, you know, it's just like getting to the heart of the issue here, which is that can another person determine, you know, the dignity and the personhood of another? Like, yeah, no, that's it's. A, I think it's a great question. It's a really difficult one for Democrats and and pro-abortion activists to answer. I, I clearly they don't have an answer. Yeah, no, which is why almost every single defense that you're going to read um from abortion advocates specifically who are making a legal argument against overturning roe the argument always comes back to well this is precedent this has been precedent for 50 years this is you know this has been the law of the land i have not you're right and actually thank you for kind of bringing that into focus but i haven't seen one argument uh on any kind of moral basis of any type right i mean they're it's precedent. And then aside to that, it's, you know, some claim of this being an attack on women. But as you point out there, that dichotomy doesn't really exist. I think they have a much tougher political position on this than they think. They do. And, you know, the one of the reasons why I feel pretty good about the court potentially overturning Roe is because the defense's argument is completely dependent upon the fact that Roe is precedent. And one of the points that the justices were making over and over again is that just because something is precedent does not mean that it cannot be overturned. Um, And we've had bad precedents overturned before. Exactly. And what's so interesting is that Justice Alito actually got the U.S. Solicitor General to admit that actually she doesn't think that it was such a bad thing that we had Plessy versus Ferguson in place for so many years because they had to wait for the right time to overturn precedent. Like, you know, it's just like ridiculous, like even legal arguments that don't make any sense. <laughs> that is that is possibly the worst argument I can imagine on this subject. I mean, come on. Okay. Hey, Kaylee, thank you so much for being on the program with us today. We really appreciate having you. We'd love to have you back in the future. Uh, and hopefully when Chuck's here, because I know he was looking forward to talking with you and then he got got scooped up by business. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, Kaylee McGee-White, fantastic interview today. Broken Potholes will be coming back next week with hopefully another great guest. I don't even know who that is at this point. Producer Kylie is not here, which means I know nothing. I have no knowledge of any kind. 
Folks, thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to download, subscribe, all that good stuff. Follow us on Twitter. You know, I don't know. Something like that. Broken Potholes, back next week. It's the new year and time for a new you. You've thought about running for political office, but don't know where to start. Before you start any planning, you need to secure your name online with a yourname.vote web domain. This means your constituents will know they are learning about the real you when they surf the web. Secure your domain from GoDaddy.com today.